Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. You can now follow us on Twitter, at LetItRollCast, and we'd love to hear what you think, so don't be shy about tweeting at us or commenting on our website. This week, author Steve Bergsman joins Nate to discuss his book, I Put a Spell on You, The Bizarre Life of Screamin' Jay Hawkins. In this episode, Steve and Nate discuss the unlikely life and career of Screamin' Jay Hawkins, who only had one hit and was a wonder, but definitely was not a one-hit wonder. This interview hits all the bases of Screamin' Jay's life, from his time on the Chitlin circuit to his revival in the New Wave 80s and final years as a celebrated cult film actor. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. Today I'm joined by Steve Bergsman, the author of I Put a Spell on You, The Bizarre Life of Screaming Jay Hawkins. Steve, welcome. Oh, well, I'm glad you called. Nice to, nice to meet you. <laughs> Thanks. And so, how did you pick Jay Hawkins as a subject for a biography? Well, it was kind of a roundabout uh, method. I, I didn't directly go out and say, I'm going to write a book about Screaming Jay Hawkins. Uh, I was friended on Facebook by a fellow named Mike Armando who had played in Jay's band in the 1970s. And he kept writing me to say, you know, you should do a book about Screaming Jay Hawkins. He's really interesting. And you know, I, I dismissed it at first, but then I got around to looking at Screaming Jay Hawkins and his career. And I thought perhaps Mike was onto something. So I eventually threw my threw my hat in there and uh, um, and said, "Well, I'm going to write this book." And so it seems like obviously the biggest challenge is that Screaming Jay passed away 20 years ago, so you can't do interviews with him. But then when you go back through his old interviews, you make it pretty clear that this guy spun a lot of tall tales. He had trouble with the truth, you might say. And it didn't make a difference if you were his best friend, if you were his wife, if he, if you did favors for him, uh, if uh, you, your promoter, he, he, he still lied to you. And um, not sure why, it was part of his personality. And uh, he just enjoyed telling these stories about himself. And they were rarely true. And uh, the, probably the most uh, uh, glaring one, he would always tell the story of when he was in the service, that he was this hero in this battle in World War II, or he was hero in this battle in the Korean War. It was so involved, he'd forget which, which, uh, 
war he was fighting. And, and as it turned out, he, he, he probably didn't, he, though he was in the service a long time during uh, the years after World War II, uh, he, he, it, it turns out he was in the band corps as opposed to the fighting corps. So all these stories were, were made up. Uh, but he, he continued to tell those stories till the day he died. <laughs> and I think you did a pretty good job of, of trying to research and track down what truth there was. I mean, it looks like he, you got the, the true skinny on his military service, which is a lot more than a lot of other writers have done. I mean, it seems like most people have been pretty happy to take Jay at his word, which seems like it was a mistake. But Jay was somebody who started out as an acolyte of Paul Robeson and had ambitions perhaps to be an operatic-style singer before he started his career. Well, you know, he, um, he took piano lessons. Uh, so let, let me just go back. So he was placed in foster care by his mother. Uh, he, he grew up in Cleveland, and uh, but it wasn't wasn't one of those foster care situations where he was moved from foster home to foster home. He was placed with a woman and he grew up with that woman, even though his mother lived not far away and he knew where his mother was. And we don't know the reason why she put him up uh, in foster care. He had uh, other siblings who she kept. Perhaps she was uh, indigent uh, and she she just couldn't feed one more child. We don't know the reason for that. But anyway, the the foster mother uh, uh, paid for his uh, piano lessons. He was or, uh, originally uh, wanted to be a piano player. And usually, when you're when you uh, take piano lessons, if you're with a good teacher, they start you through the classics. So Jay probably developed uh, an interest in uh, classical music. Uh, you could hear, you could hear uh, Paul Robeson on, on the radio and uh, you could hear opera on the radio. But Cleveland was also uh, an R&B town. And as he got older and uh, he, he, he would, he'd hear these R&B tunes, uh, rhythm and blues, sorry, uh, not only on the radio, but he can go to any club uh, in his area and and stand outside and hear the you know the rhythm and blues and the stride piano players, and so he his interest shifted to R and B. But as he grew, as he learned the piano, he he kept his interest in in classical music and opera. Uh, and uh, anybody knew who knew him throughout his life always said he enjoyed opera. And uh, he almost got a chance to actually sing in an opera uh, in, in Greece, but he died before all that happened. Yeah, and he, um, after he got out of the service, he made a key uh, acquaintance, which was Alan Freed, the famous rock and roll radio DJ in Cleveland. Yeah, so Cleveland, um, so Alan Freed uh, was a uh, sort of an itinerant DJ working his way up through the Midwest, going from uh, one station to a bigger station to a bigger station. Finally, uh, 
hitting the top, one of the top markets in the Midwest, Cleveland. And, uh, and the story of Alan Freed, he, he, uh, he, he was in Cleveland and he, he met uh, somebody who owned a record store. And the guy said, well, all these white teenagers are coming in and buying all these rhythm and blues records. You, you should do something. So uh, Alan Freed created the Moondog Show, which was a very jive, hip-talking, uh, he was way out there on, on the spectrum, you might say, uh, for his time. And he was playing all these rhythm and blues records. And when uh, Screamin' Jay came back from the service and, and came back to Cleveland, he heard the Moondog Show. And he thought, well, I'll go meet this guy. And he did. He met, uh, uh, he went to the station, met Alan Freed. And Alan Freed would remember him because years later, about five, five or six years later, Screaming Jay would have his song, I Put a Spell on You. And, and Alan Freed would help him with his career as much as he could. So Aaron, Alan Freed was uh, really that kind of guy. He was, really was helpful to a lot of the uh, black musicians uh, at, at the time. And he certainly played their records on the radio. The, the, the weird part of that whole story is a lot of people say that Alan Freed created rock and roll, but that wasn't really true. Uh, rhythm and blues w was percolating, percolating up in the, through the forties and by the 1950s was really sort of switching over to what would be sort of a rock and roll sound. However, you could say that Alan Freed created the first rock and roll concert. And his show was so successful in Cleveland that he decided to, to do a, a big show and he would bring in all these rhythm and blues singers and have this big show in a, a big auditorium in Cleveland. As it turned out, uh, something like 20,000 people showed up, uh, more people than there were seats in this auditorium. And it so frightened the local police that only one performer, one group, sang one song, and the police closed the, the, uh, uh, the showdown for, for fear of a riot. God. So he actually, Alan Freed... <laughs> So Alan Freed invented the first uh, rock and roll concert and had the first rock and roll riot <laughs> in, in the early fifties. I'm sure. But one of the one of the go ahead. sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say I'm sure so, Screaming Jay contributed to the atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so uh, one of the headliners on the show was this guy named Tiny Grimes, and by the time. Tiny Grimes leaves Cleveland. Screaming Jay is with him heading back to New York. He, he was married, had three kids. He, he sees it, walks out on the curb uh, in the morning, sees his older daughter, says, uh, I'm, I'm going to the candy store or something. And, and then he was gone. Off to New York with Tiny Grimes. And that was a critical apprenticeship for Screaming Jay, uh, learning R&B. Tiny Grimes is one of these figures that was a jazz player, but he's doing more and more boogie-woogie and sort of early proto-rock and roll R&B stuff to keep up with the times. 
And they also uh, adopted a pretty colorful stage review where they dressed up in kilts and called themselves the Highlanders. Yeah, so the, uh, Tiny Graham's a fascinating guy, sort of lost in, in, in history now. But he was a, a, a big jazz musician, well-known on the East Coast, played with a lot of big-name uh, uh, jazz, jazz people. And then, but, you know, to survive, he, he sort of had to evolve. And then he, he moved to rhythm and blues. And, and then he created this thing uh, because they did a, a, a really bluesy, jazzy version of the old Scottish folk song, Loch Lamont. So they did that. It was very successful. And he created this kind of stage show with his band. He was tiny Mac Grimes and his rocking Highlanders. And they all dressed up in, uh, in kilts and Tam O'Shanters and they, and they, and so it was uh, five or six, uh, black dudes dressed up in, in plaids and kilts and, and Tam O'Shanters. And, uh, it was, it was great fun. And, and, uh, uh, nobody was offended and everybody enjoyed the joke and, and, and it, and it was really, really a popular band. And it set and, the tone for Screaming Jay of over-the-top uh, theatrics in his stage act. Yes, of course, uh, well, Screaming Jay uh, joined uh, Tiny Grimes, and he was also a part of, uh, of the Rockin' Highlanders. And, and, and the Rockin' Highlanders and Tiny Grimes, they, sometimes they would do uh, very bizarre theatrical things on stage, uh, uh, often very risque kind of shows and so uh screaming jay who's he was still jealousy jay hawkins at the time uh he was learning the craft from tiny grimes and he and he saw that these sort of uh, uh bizarre shows that tiny could put on really attracted a uh, a following so he was learning his craft but picking up some uh hints as the way he would go when he got his his recording career started so you might say uh you know of course screaming jay uh his 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 shows were really really bizarre he, he would dress up uh he uh he'd have a cape and uh he have a, a bones hanging from his nose he have a, a cane with a skull on top, which he, which he called Henry. Uh, he, there'd be smoke and noise, and uh, perhaps the most famous thing he's known for, he would come out of a coffin to sing "I Put a Spell on You." So he had a really bizarre stage act, and then you know uh, the, the 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 great uh, groups in the late sixties and seventies, such as Kiss or or Alice Cooper. You know, they picked that up from Screaming Jay Hawkins. So it starts out with Tiny Grimes, gets picked up by Screaming Jay, who really pushes that crazy theatrical theme on in his concerts. And then by the 60s and 70s, you have Kiss and Alice Cooper. So you could see the, the, you know, the line there. Yeah, for sure. And let's let's hear a little bit. After he leaves Tiny Grimes, he, he records uh, for several record labels on his own singing R&B sides and I wanted to play one of those songs 
uh, she put the whammy on me. This is Screaming Jay Hawkins. I met a big woman with eyes of fury and a voice his heart stone Vow she get me and that was Screaming Jay doing a song pre-I Put a Spell on You called She Put the Whammy on Me. I believe he did that for Grand Records. He had a, a number of record labels before he hits with OK. Tell us a little bit about his, his years in the wilderness and his apprenticeship as a solo artist. So uh, he, one of the good things, Tiny Grimes knew a lot of people. And uh, so he's back east and... and and Screamin' Scream Jay, still Jalousy Jay Hawkins, uh, w- was meeting a lot of people. And uh, he played with a lot of... Uh, so he left Tiny Grimes and then was sort of uh, moving around quite a bit, uh, uh, attaching himself to uh, a number of different bands and band leaders, a lot of them out of Philadelphia. Because Philadelphia was a big uh, rhythm and blues town. It had a strong radio stations, strong DJs. So on the East Coast, if you weren't in New York, you really needed to be in Philadelphia. So, you know, Screamer Jay would, would move back and forth between New York and Philadelphia, attaching himself to different bands. One of them, which he attached to, was Fats Domino and his band. And he played with Fats Domino a while. And then, in, in, in typical Screamer Jay fashion, he created some uh, whopper of a tale to explain why he left Fats Domino. And the tale uh, that he told, uh, and he told it often, uh, and, and it probably wasn't true, but it was, it was a, it's a good story, that Fats Domino was getting jealous of Screaming Jay in his band. And he tells Screaming Jay one day, Go up in the balcony and tell me how many times you could see the diamond, my diamond ring flash in the lights. And uh, so Screaming Jay went up in the balcony and uh, he had to count how many times Fats Domino's ring flashed. And that was Fats Domino telling him who was the main guy in the band. So, uh, and then he left Fats Domino, but he, he, he played with uh, many, many, uh, 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 big names at the, at the time, b- trying to find his own way. And then he, uh, he began recording with small labels, uh, uh in New York and Philadelphia, working his way up and, and, uh, put the whammy on me. Uh, a lot of people think it's one of his best songs. It was pre I put a spell on you, but you could already see which direction he was going uh, in the kind of songs he was going to do. So he still had a, a, a number of small labels, and he, as his song, he was a prodigious songwriter, Screaming Jay, and he writes his song, I Put a Spell on You, but the first time he records it, it's a ballad, slow ballad. Uh, and then he gets a break and, uh, it might've been okay. Uh, okay. E H not okay. A Y, uh, records. 
and they um, and, and uh, by this time he knows a lot of people and uh, he has a recording session and he brings in some top f- flight musicians including Mickey Baker of uh, who later on would be known as part of Mickey and Sylvia Love is Strange but Mickey Baker was one of the great session uh, guitarists at the time so he has a lot of guys like that Red Prysak uh, come in and play with them, but the the, the the music director wasn't happy with the performance. He felt the band wasn't loose enough, so he, as the story goes, he, he, he gets dinner, he brings in fried chicken and, and a ton of booze, and the, and, and the musicians get all liquored up, and they're eating, and they're having a party, and they come back to do I Put a Spell on You, and uh, uh, and and they just sing a raucous version with with a uh, scream and Jay grunting and groaning and and making all these weird noises, and that's what's recorded, and that ends up to be the the single that they cut. I put a spell on you with the with these uh, weird spooky sounds that screaming jay is making and that's the record that hit with the public and, and that was we, the record that made him famous before we talk more about the record let's talk a little bit about, about the name screaming jay hawkins you document some of the different stories he told about that and at some points he would claim that that was something that was imposed on him by management and producers and that he kind of resented it and other times he would tell stories that he he had invented it or been given a name by a, a big, large woman um, at one of his shows. Tell us what you think might be the, the closest to the truth that you got on that story. Well, he was a, in the early 50s, before I put a spell on you, he was uh, recording an, uh, fairly often on a number of small labels, and he was sort of testing out his persona. And his name was Jalacy, J-A-L-A-C-Y, J is middle initial, Hawkins. And perhaps, he, I think he didn't feel that was such a hot name to go out to the public with. And, um, you know, one of the guys who was uh, 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 popular at the time was Big Joe Turner. So if you have a big Joe Turner, it's not a big leap to have a screaming Jay Hawkins. So I, I, I think he, he, he was uh, absorbing all this from around him. And he just, my feeling is that uh, it, it, he would just follow uh, uh, what was popular out there. Big Joe Turner, screaming Jay Hawkins, I'm going to do it. And he had, and you're right, he had a, many, many different stories of how uh, uh he came up with, with, with screaming, but it was also, uh, it, it wasn't a big leap because, uh, going back to whammy, he, he, he sort of, uh, he, he didn't quite scream, but he had a lot of noises that he made, which, which, uh, uh, in his songs. And, uh, he was loud and raucous when he sang. So, uh, it was a good, name for him and let's hear and, the hit and eventually go ahead fin- go ahead and finish the story and then we'll hear the hit 
Yeah, so uh, it, it was an appropriate name for him to use. And and he did. There, there's a story that uh, a woman in a bar said, you know, gave him a name. And, and there's a, he told many stories, uh, uh, introspective stories, how he felt that he was a screamer, not a singer, and he should have this name. But in fact, it was a name that was appropriate, and he probably lifted it from other singers who are out at the time. Cool, and so let's hear it. The classic, I Put a Spell on You by Screaming Jay Hawkins. I put a spell on you. Because of mine. Stop the things you do. And that was I Put a Spell on You, the signature song of Screaming Jay Hawkins. And that comes out, and it's a hit, but it never really charts. Explain how that worked. How did that happen, and what was the impact of the song once it was released? This is probably one of the most unusual hit records in the history of rock and roll. So the record comes out and starts being played on the radio stations, but there are a lot of complaints that it was uh, perverse or uh, uh, something that should not be played on, on, on the radio because the sounds were gross. And uh, uh, so uh, there were a lot of issues, uh, especially with all the grunts and groans that, that Screamin' Jay put on the songs, song. And so the radio stations stopped playing the song many of the radio stations stopped playing the song, but by word of mouth, people heard of the song and they would go to their, their record stores. Uh, this was, you know, decades before streaming. If you wanted uh, uh, to hear a song, you bought generally, you bought the small 45 uh, version of uh, a record platter, not even an album. It was the small, 40, played at 45 RPMs. It was called the 45. So uh, teenagers were going into the record stores and buying, I put a spell on you. But meanwhile, you couldn't hear it on the radio anymore because of all the complaints about the song. So uh, the, you know, big companies on the radio stations, they didn't want to offend their their listener listeners. They didn't want to offend uh, the, the, the businesses that had commercials on their stations, they took, uh, I put a spell on you off the record, but it continued to sell. And then over time, it probably sold a million records, uh, uh, in a few short years, just on word of mouth. That's incredible. And, and the record company follows up with an album and decides to go in a completely different direction with the album, which they called at home with screaming Jay Hawkins. Well, so they, um, they really didn't know what to do with Screaming Jay. So there was two ways to go. They could play up his bizarreness, or they could try to normalize him. So in the album, uh, they tried to normalize him, make him palatable to teenagers and teenagers' parents, <laughs> you might say. So... Uh, um, the, the the album uh, at home with I think it was called at home with Screaming Jay. You might have it in front of you there. 
Yeah, and they tried to. Yeah, so they try to make him sort of uh, folksy, uh, uh, sort of a folksy kind of person, but it didn't work. Uh, you, either, you either had to go bizarre or you had to go normal, but I don't think either would have played well, and the route they, they took really didn't play well. And uh, the album didn't do very well. well. Albums really weren't pushed very hard in those days anyway. And, uh, and it didn't do any good to normalize Screamin' Jay because his effect and his stage show was bizarre. And, and he's doing fairly well on the road, but he, then he tries to do some follow-up singles. They even brought in Lieber and Stoller to write up a follow-up, and they tried to go in more of the... They tried to be consistent with... I put a spell on you with their song, Alligator Wine. How'd that work for him? Uh, it, it's, it's one of those odd, thing, odd things. Well, it's not odd thing. It happens all the time in the music business. You have a, a, a really strong uh, initial song everybody loves it then you try and do a follow-up and nothing works and that's really what happened to screaming jay he tried uh numerous styles uh even going to Lieber and stoller uh for a song that wasn't his he mostly wrote his own songs uh but nothing worked i think uh, perhaps the radio stations were still afraid of him so that that was an issue uh and in the mid 50s um uh, if, if you don't mind, what we swing back to Alan Freed. So, uh, so Alan Freed, but you know, who we met five, six years before, really tries to help him out. He he, he does. Uh, Alan Freed is now known for his big concerts. Uh, he would do them uh, in New York. He was now he moved from Cleveland to New York. He, he was on a radio station in New York, the you know the biggest audience of any radio station in the country, and he'd do these shows in uh, around New York, often in places like Brooklyn, and he and he'd put Screaming Jay on the show. So, uh, so there's uh, and and when they did shows back in those days, it wasn't like okay, we have the Rolling Stones and and you watch a, uh, a concert by the Rolling Stones or, or uh, Taylor Swift, and it's all Taylor Swift. In those days, you had you know, 10, 20 groups. Uh, the group would come out, or the singer would come out, sing uh, one or two songs, gone. Next one comes out, one or two songs, gone. Next one. So you, you'd sit there you know, for hours, and you'd see 10 or 20 you know, of your favorite artists. And Alan Freed in his first show or two put Screaming Jay on the bill. So, but apparently he saw something in Screaming Jay that, that he thought would work for him. And he says to Screaming Jay, you know, what would be really interesting if you come out of a coffin before you sing, I put a spell on you. And Screaming Jay goes, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm not getting, that's crazy. I'm not going to get into a coffin. And, uh, and, and, and Alan Freed starts, you know, takes out his wallet, lays uh, some money on, on, on uh, his palm. And when he gets to about $300, uh, 
uh, Screaming Jay says, okay, I'll do it. Of course, in later years, that whatever the initial amount of money is, and most people think it's $300, in later years, he was, oh, it's $5,000 or $2,000. You know, Screamer Jay could always take a, a one little iota, a speck of a story, and create something big with it. So he does the, the uh, comes out of the coffin, sings, I put a spell on you, and that becomes his successful stage act for many, many years. Now, the other thing that Alan Freed tried to do with him, you know, Alan Freed, a uh, great entrepreneur, in, in in the early days of rock and roll, he's doing teen movies. And uh, he's going to put Screamin' Jay in one of his teen movies. And these teen movies, very slim plot, and the whole idea was to uh, show rock and rollers, and, and he'd get uh, uh, Little Richard or Chuck Berry and anybody else who was popular now into his show. So his movies would showcase four or five uh, big-name rock and rollers, and the whole idea was to show how these people are just normal normal singers, and, and it's okay for your teenage children to listen to their music. So that was the whole purpose of these teen movies that Alan Freed did. But So he's going to put... Screaming Jay in one of his movies, and for some odd reason, he has Screaming Jay dress up like some weird version of uh, and somebody from an African tribe. Um, and he has the whole whole thing. He's in a loincloth and a painted face and looking bizarre. And I guess. When they when they looked at the uh, at the, uh, the cuts as they were putting the movie together, they said, "This is really too bizarre to put into our movie." And poor Screaming Jay gets cut out of the movie. So all the other rock and rollers have their little bit in in, uh, in Alan Freed's teen movie, but not Screaming Jay. And that's pretty much how the way his career career was going at that point. He couldn't find a follow up hit. He's not in a movie that would have given him promotion. His album, they tried to neuter him. It failed. Uh, so from a high point of, of uh, I put a spell on you, it's, things are quickly sliding downward for him. And then he gets in some legal trouble and, and uh, draws a prison sentence. Yes. Uh, the legal trouble. And I'm trying to recall exactly what what it was. I think it was he a statutory been, rape. Yeah. yeah yes. Uh, he was with uh, a girl, underage girl, and uh, uh, he was caught and, and he was put in jail. So the, the thing about that is, uh, uh, so he, he was in. He was married. Three children walks out of his marriage. Very handsome guy. He's playing all these uh, clubs all around. He's in New York. He's in Philadelphia. He's playing Atlantic City. And there are women all over the place. And he just uh, has his pick of women. And he, he really didn't differentiate young, old, 
black or white, he slept with everyone. And uh, apparently one of those he slept with was, was underage, and then he was put in prison. And uh, he, and in prison, the story is he met a, a famous country singer uh, who named, uh, alludes me right now, and they David played Allen together Co. in prison. David Allen Coe. Coe. Thank you very much. Sure. Yeah. And, and when David Allen Coe wrote his, uh, his own biography, he mentions uh, playing with, with, with Screamin' Jay in the Ohio Penitentiary. So that, uh, that was the Screamin' Jay. But Screamin' Jay had a, a, other brushes because he'd come back into Ohio and he, uh, you know, he really, uh, his, his wife would sue him for, for support. So he'd come back into Cleveland or something, and they'd arrest him because you know he's not uh, paying support for his children and his family. So he had a he had a few turns with the uh, with the law, you might say. And meanwhile, uh, his that song... also go ahead. Yeah, so that also helped dethrone uh, whatever uh, or deflect or, or or destroy his career. So. And on top of everything else, he's out of circulation for a year because he's in the pen. So uh, things go from bad to worse for, for Screaming Jay. And, and meanwhile, so he spends the 60s in kind of an exile. And you, you detail in the book, uh, you know, how he spent some time in Hawaii as an MC in a bar. And he tours England because some young fans, you know, have have organized some letter writing campaigns and get promoters to book him in England. But meanwhile, the song becomes a sort of standard through the '60s, and and it's picked up by songs bands like Creedence Clearwater Revival. And Nina Simone does a killer version, and let's hear that right now. This is Nina Simone's version of "I Put a Spell on You." a spell on you Cause you're mine do, 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 do. And that was Nina Simone's very different interpretation of I Put a Spell on You. Do you have any insight as to how Screaming Jay felt about his song getting picked up? Was he getting the royalties for this? Because he was the, the credited songwriter, or was, or was it misappropriated, as so often was the case? Well, it's, it was hard to track down, and I didn't get a definitive an answer to this, but I believe at some point he sold the right to I Put a Spell on You. I mean, his career really went way, way down. Uh, at some point he was indigent and, and living in single room occupancies and, and barely making a living. So if there was an opportunity to uh, sell uh, the rights to his song and make a few money, make, make a few dollars, uh, I believe that's something he did. And, and I picked that up through uh, some comments uh, that, he did a, a movie in the eighties and the director, Jim Jarmusch mentioned that it was so difficult to get the rights to the song 
Uh, he, he put Screaming Jay in his movie, but he mentioned uh, how difficult it was to get the rights to the song because Screaming Jay didn't own the rights. So he had to go elsewhere to get the rights to the song. So that led me to believe that uh, at some point he sold, he sold, he sold those rights. And in the uh, 80s, before he gets involved with Jarmusch in the movies, uh, he he hooks up with a garage revival band called the Fuzz Tones and enjoys a little bit of a revival in the 80s. How did that, how did that happen? So he has a, a few revivals, and you mentioned some of them. Um, so first, uh, you know, the, the, uh, in Europe, they, they, they really revered rhythm and blues. Uh, and the old rhythm and blues singer. So a lot of a lot of uh, rhythm and blues singers from the uh, late '40s, the '50s, they can go to Europe and have another career. And uh, somehow uh, uh, these European fans they they contact Screaming Jay and they bring him to England, and he has a uh, um, sort of a, a career revival touring about. In England, he goes back twice in the early 60s, first revival. Meanwhile, in, in the mid-60s, Nina Simone singing I Put a Spell on You, which was, was a, a big hit in England, not so much in the United States, but it was a top, I think it was about a top 20 hit in England. And then you get to the end of the 60s, and Creedence Clearwater puts uh, uh, their swamp rock version of I put a spell on you on their album. And in the end, of, at the end of the 60s, early 70s, Creedence Clearwater is the hottest band on the planet. So that brings the song back to a revival. Uh, and his career is revived once more. And then it goes downhill again. And then in, in, by the 80s, uh, the, uh, he's in New York and, and he's really barely making a living. And, and, um, but the uh, the post the punk post punk crowd uh, uh, sort of adopts him. That, that they feel he was uh, a, a progenitor of the, the of the punk movement, and uh, he, he starts having a, a revival in some of the hip clubs in New York City. Uh, uh, one of the up and coming bands at at the time was a group called the Fuzz Tones. And uh, he, he he cuts an EP with him, which is a really very strong EP. And um, he plays with him at, at, at a number of locations in in uh, in New York, none of the uh, a, a number of the uh, the hip venues, and uh, and then it all uh, like everything else, it all disappears once again. Uh, uh, the first tones semi break up. They they uh, and and relocate to, to, to Los Angeles, and um, eventually uh, Screamin' Jay has to give up on New York as well, and he goes out to Los Angeles, where they they really hadn't seen him very much. He was very doing a lot of whatever he was doing. He was doing on the East Coast. And uh, he ends up in Los Angeles and has a, sort of another revival. Uh, on the West Coast, because he was a performer that now legendary, but they hadn't seen very much of. So 
So he has a, uh, a another revival, and then by that time, Jim Jarmusch is putting him in movies. Yeah, and, and Jarmusch uh, builds his first movie, Stranger Than Paradise. I mean, the song, I Put a Spell on You, might as well be the lead character in that film. Yeah, he uh, Jim Jarmusch was a huge fan of Screamin' Jay. Uh, he he uh, not only does uh, Stranger in Paradise, one of the great independent films of all time, uh, and then he, he follows that up with Mystery Train, which takes place in Mem- Memphis, and he actually puts Screamin' Jay in the movie as a character in the movie. And the screaming Jay does a very good job. It's a, it's a bit part, but he, 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 he's, he's exceptional for his bit, bit part. So he was a really a big fan of, of screaming Jay. But the, the, the odd thing is he's Jim Jarmusch loves screaming Jay doing big favor, helping revive his career, puts him in a movie. He's making money with these movies, uh, uh, screaming Jay. But he still lies to Jim Jarmusch. He tells, you know, Jim Jarmusch the usual terrible stories about, you know, him uh, wounded in, in these heroic battles in World War II career. He never get it. He can never remember where what stories he's telling. So he he, he just goes on. It, it never changes for for Screaming Jay. He, he he cannot help himself. He has to tell these sort of uh, these lies, it's just part of his persona, like some people who run for political office, you might say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it, uh, Jarmusch helps Screaming Jay, you know, his last decade, the 90s, was one of the best decades of his career. Yeah, so Screaming Jay, so he gets a, a you, you could see now a pattern. He, he's up, he's down, he's up, he's down, he's up, he's down, he's up and down. And, uh, uh, so after, uh, the, the movies, he's, he's up once again and he takes advantage of it and he goes to Europe. He relocates to Europe, uh, where still from going back to the sixties and probably today, if you're an old rhythm and blues singer, you can have a career because they, they sort of worship you in, in Europe. You know, in the United States, you're an old rhythm and blues singer. You're an old rhythm and blues singer. Nobody cares. But in Europe, you're 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 uh, uh, you're important to them. So he has he goes to Europe. He relocates to France, uh, and uh, he, he he can tour Europe and he can tour tour the world. And um, uh, he has a very good life. He, he marries for the fourth time uh, to uh, a French woman. And then uh, when, when that marriage fails, he, he marries for the sixth time. So wait a minute, I got that wrong. He marries for the fifth time a French woman. And then when that marriage fails, he marries for the sixth time a woman who he meets in Paris who's not French. She was from French Africa, who was living in, in Paris at the time, and that's his uh, sixth and final marriage. And some of the karma for the way he's treated his previous wives, which is pretty appalling. Uh, not, I mean, we've had we've talked about James Brown and Chuck Berry on the show before, so it's nothing uh, we haven't seen before. But 
the 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 wheel turns with his final wife and she's she's the one that perhaps i don't know if abusive is the right word but she's definitely got the upper hand yeah so uh, um i always call it the wife too far uh the, the <laughs> one the, <laughs> the one that uh, he probably shouldn't have done so uh, let me just recap a little of his pattern. So he w- walks out of his first marriage and then meets uh, an Asian woman in, uh, in Hawaii and marries her. But the thing about that was he never divorced his first wife. So he's actually married to two women now. He didn't, uh, he didn't uh, get a divorce from his first wife till the 70s. And by that time, he's already married 10 years to his second wife. So that's the longest. His second wife is, is his longest marriage. And uh, to be a wife of Screaming Jay, you had to be all things. You had to be his nursemaid. You had to be his waitress. You had to be his stagehand. You had to be his accountant. You had to be everything and all things to Screaming Jay. It was an exhausting way to live. Plus, you had to keep an eye on him. You had to try and go to as many gigs as possible because, you know, if he wasn't there, he'd be sleeping with somebody else after the show. So it was an exhausting, and uh, he was with the second wife, I'm guessing about 20 years uh, offhand now. And, uh, and some say he abused her. Uh, but that, and, and, and I put that in the book, but it was secondhand. Pe- people saying that he, nobody saw it, but they said he abused her. And then he, he, uh, that marriage ends and he marries a, a, a third woman, uh, an African American woman named Carrie. And this is where we, we hear the stories that he's abusing his wife, uh, his wife. Um, and in between there were numerous, uh, engagements that he, you know, oh, we're engaged, we're engaged, but never marry, never marries the woman. So he marries, uh, Cassie, third, third wife. And then, uh, that ends after a couple of years. And, uh, he marries a Japanese woman who, who nobody remembers because she was only on a scene for a couple of months. And then her parents came and got her and, and took her back to Japan. And, and that, and that was the fourth wife marries, uh, a very pleasant, uh, wonderful, uh, uh, woman from, from France. Uh, and she was with him for a couple of years, but it was just too exhausting being, uh, screaming Jay's wife. And, and she always said she, she loved him till the end, but she couldn't stay married to him. And then, uh, so there's a pattern here. He's getting older, older, older but the age of his wife never changes. So he's getting older, but whatever uh, uh, age he likes of his women, that stays the same. So by the time of his sixth wife, he's now getting on in years, uh, but his wife is still very young because that age doesn't change. So in all his previous uh, marriages, he, he sort of had the upper hand. Uh, he, they did whatever he wanted. He, he always married compliant women who would do whatever he said. And if they didn't, uh, perhaps he'd slap them around. So 
so that's that's the story anyway. But he ma- he's now sixty, getting on seventy, and uh, he marries a woman in her thirties who was from Africa, and she's part of a, a whole clan of people who had emigrated, and and she, he has no control over her. In fact, she has control over him. And on top of all that, he's afraid of the clan because if he, he does anything wrong, they come in and they threaten him. So he's now, it's the wife too far for him. Karma's <laughs> uh, a bitch, as I say. And let's hear one last song from Screaming <laughs> Jay. This is Screaming Jay and the Fuzz Tones doing Alligator Wine from 1985. And that was Screaming Jay with the uh, punk garage band, the Fuzz Tones, in the 80s. So to sum it all up, Steve, I see St- Screaming Jay as somebody who sort of um, was a late bloomer. His musical style really fits in more with the early 50s R&B. If people you talk about in the book that he hung out with, people like Johnny Ace and Guitar Slim, Jesse Belvin. And when he does hit, it's it's this epic classic song and an epic classic performance and then that kind of overshadows him the whole rest of his life how do you feel did you get any sense of whether screaming jay was satisfied with his career or if he was happy that he had that much or if there was you know something he felt he had left undone well he he, he screaming jay sort of created his own problems and you wonder okay he did this great song I couldn't spell on you. How come his career didn't advance? But he he, he be, became trapped. He he create from uh, from whammy uh, the song you played earlier to uh, and a couple of years later I put a spell on you. He he became trapped in this whole sort of uh, crazy sound. He was always gurgling and and uh, grunting. And his stage show was the same. He, he was always trapped in this uh, bizarro world. And at some point, he can never get beyond it. Uh, and and then if th- times got bad for him, he'd go back to the old uh, bizarro stage show or he'd go back to the old grunting, groaning sounds of his songs. So he... He created uh, his own, you might say, he created his own problems. He, he can never escape uh, his success. And I, and I think he felt that sometimes. You know, he would often lament that, you know, I got you know, to come out of the coffin again. I got to come out of the coffin. But it was his own choosing, and, and, and uh, he knew it was the only thing that really was uh, winning over the audience, audiences. So he, he, it's true. He might have wanted to sing opera, or he might have wanted, and and you know, on on many of his albums, he'd sing the old classics. Nobody was interested. They all wanted to hear his his crazy, crazy stuff. 
like constipation blues and things like that. <laughs> so yeah. he, he created he created his own his own jail for himself, you might say. And lived it out, and the rest of us can enjoy the records and the films uh, and the legacy of the great Screaming Jay Hawkins. So, Steve, this is Steve Bergsman, author of I Put a Spell on You, The Bizarre Life of Screaming Jay Hawkins. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks very much for having me. Really appreciate it, Nathan. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at LetItRollCast. Come back next Monday when legendary rock critic Robert Criscal joins Nate to discuss his two most recent collections, Is It Still Good to You? and Book Reports. I Put a Spell on You, The Bizarre Life of Screamin' Jay Hawkins is published by Feral House. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, LetItRollPodcast.com. Hey there, this is Tyrell Listen, the host of the band History a new show that takes a deep dive into the legendary roots rock group, The Band. Perhaps one of the most overlooked groups in music history went from being a backing band to the legends like Ronnie Hawkins and Bob Dylan to creating some of the most influential music of the 1960s and 70s. The band is responsible for the back-to-basics approach to rock in the late 60s, foregoing psychedelia and acid pop of the day and influencing artists like The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, and Eric Clapton to bring it back to the roots. This new podcast is here to peel back the curtain on the mysterious group that took the music world by storm, not with press, fancy magazine covers, or massive tours, but with their music. Come and check it out.